For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet James Burns and hear about his experience with solitary confinement. We'll take a closer look at the psychological effects that long-term isolation can have and examine the role of solitary in the Arizona correction system. That story is next on this special edition of Arizona Spotlight. Good afternoon. I want to check in one last time. Uh, For those of you that don't know, and for those of you who want to know, my name is James Burns. And uh, I have voluntarily subjected myself to 30 days of solitary confinement. Today is January 10th, 2017. And... uh, Last December, documentary filmmaker James Burns voluntarily put himself in solitary confinement in the La Paz County Jail in Parker, Arizona. If you add that time to the 11 months that Burns spent in solitary when he was a teenage convict, that makes one year of his life spent without social interaction, music, books, or sunlight. Burns works as a journalist for Vice, a Canadian-American digital media and broadcasting company. He says he did this project for many reasons, including to raise awareness on behalf of the estimated 70,000 men and women held in solitary confinement every day in the United States. There was a camera on the wall of his cell that provided a live stream of everything he said and did during that 30-day period. Four days after his release, I talked with James Burns about the experience and how it began. My personal experience with solitary confinement wasn't a good one. When I was 15 years old, I was charged as an adult and sentenced to 12 years, and I served four years on that 12. Uh, By the time I was 16, I had landed myself in solitary confinement for 11 consecutive months, and it was extremely painful, Um, and I feel like my mental health was regressing the longer I was staying in there. And the worst part about it was when I was actually released. Readjusting back to society was very difficult for me. Well, what were some of the symptoms that you would say you experienced once that 11 months had passed? Paranoia, extreme paranoia, antisocial behavior, deep insecurities, and just, just feeling like I had no hope. There was a lot of depression as well, and um, I think that a lot of people come out and then they begin to self-medicate with, you know, alcohol or drugs because of that pain. When someone who's never served time hears about solitary confinement, most of us would think, well, there's still some interaction on some level with the guards. I mean, they have to bring you food. Um, I assume your bedding and so forth, your hygiene needs are at least acknowledged. Um, Tell us about that. When you say solitary, how truly solitary is it? You know, when I first experienced solitary, uh, that means no interaction with other inmates. And you have 
a few micro interactions throughout the day with corrections officers, and that's uh, strictly on a um, mechanical level. It's you know them giving you your food or your basic hygiene needs. So you spend about 98 to 99% of your day without an interaction uh, or saying a word to anyone at all. So it's it's pretty solitary. It's not like you never see a human being uh, or have any interaction. I mean, but the small interactions that you have are uh, are interesting because it's to put leg irons or handcuffs on you or to feed you through a slot, you know, like an animal. Those interactions aren't uh, regular connections that we'd have in the outside world, like, hey, how you doing today, or as simple as giving a handshake or a hug to someone. Were you allowed books or anything to help you pass the time? The first time I experienced solitary, I didn't have any privileges, so no reading materials or stationary items, no visitations, um, no privileges at all, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, for a while, because they took everything from me, all I had was my boxers, uh, a toothbrush, and a little bit of toothpaste, and I'd, I'd get 15 squares of toilet paper a day. So that's what okay. my first experience was like. Where did you go? Where does your mind go in that kind of deprivation? I think when you experience that kind of deprivation, your mind goes to the the darkest corners, and you begin to hate yourself. You begin to resent pretty much everything and everyone you self-destruct, and whether people know it or not, that's what they're doing when they're, you know, even resisting the officers, they're self-destructing because there's this power dynamic that's happening, you know. Um, officers have to maintain dominance and order, and they don't really care about your suffering because you're in jail, you know, you're in, or in prison. That's the way, that's what's supposed to happen. And you, your role as an inmate is to submit. But how do you submit internally to something like that, to someone who doesn't care about your suffering? So every single tiny little interaction is a, is a power struggle. You end up self-destructing when you lose control, you know, or you self-destruct when you mutilate yourself. Or maybe it's a way for people to try to, to gain control or power back. It's the only control that they have is, is to hurt themselves or or something else or to resist. And I, I resisted a, a lot. I couldn't submit uh, internally to, to something like that. And officers in solitary confinement units, if they see a problem, they'll take things from zero to 100 very quickly. So if you're banging on your door or you're covering your window or if you're hurting yourself or, or making threats, they take that very seriously, and basically, you know, they'll bring a team in there to cell extract you, which is basically spray you down with mace or tase you or shoot you with a shotgun beanbag um, and take you from the cell and put you in a, another unit for a while until you calm down. And, and that's like usually you, you'd be strapped down in a chair or on a table and um, – some other form of restraint where you can't move at all. Did you experience that level? I did. I did. Did you ever get tased or maced or have that kind of violence inflicted on you? 
I actually did um, because, again, I and this is it's pretty common for inmates to eventually end up being problematic uh, because their mental health is just completely slipping. And um, some people would rather have a team of officers come in and extract them from a cell than have no human interaction at all. It's, it's also common for people to cut themselves or mutilate themselves or even rub their own excrement all over their bodies or all over the window. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And for me personally, I, I have um, kicked my door and covered my window, and I was cell extracted and maced and uh, strapped down in a four-point restraint, which is basically on a stretcher where I couldn't move. And I've also been strapped down into a chair and left in a and what they call a, a rubber room, where it's just a rubber room with a hole in the floor for you to use the bathroom, but you can't use the bathroom because you're strapped down in a chair. To better understand the effects that solitary confinement can have, AZPM mental health reporter Gisela Tellis spoke with psychiatrist Oli Teenhouse, chair of the psychiatry department at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. Ole, what do we know about what long-term isolation does to the brain? Long-term isolation, whether it's you know in the correctional system or in, cast away on an island, if you will, deprives the brain from getting the stimuli that really serve to keep it alive, if you will. It's a little bit like if you're laid up in a, in a cast and your muscles atrophy. So the, the brain doesn't get the stimuli that maintain its contact with reality. So what happens is certain functions become slower or maybe even disappear. And in some predisposed people, some psychiatric symptoms even occur, such as people might hear voices or get some ideas that are not really based on reality. So functionally, that's what's happening. And this corresponds with some uh, changes that some neuroscientists can actually demonstrate in the brain structures. But as a clinician, the biggest concern of people in continued isolation is that there are some uh, symptoms that indicate a change in mental status towards reduced reality testing. And what's reality testing? Reality testing means that you're really in touch with what's going on around you. So you know what the date is, what time it is roughly, who you are, where you are, uh, what's going on, what's important for you, where you get your next meal, how you're going to go to sleep and so forth. And if uh, you look at your own environment, your own life, you notice that a lot of this information just pours into you from the outside. You know, you you uh, realize it's morning because the sun goes up, okay? It's becoming light. Now, some of us, you know, are isolated from that, but somewhere along the way, we probably notice whether it's dark or light. If you are in a typical isolation situation, these functions are deprived. You know, you don't have a window to look out. Somebody manipulates a a light switch, presumably, but sometimes uh, certain correctional conditions even deprive you of that. And before you know it, a person's psychological equilibrium requires them to make some sort of sense of it. And that's the situation where the risk occurs that reality testing loss becomes actually the entryway into a psychotic state where you suddenly hallucinate things happening that give you the information you don't get normally. 
According to the Department of Justice data, the most recent data I was able to find, there are more than 70,000 juveniles um, who are detained in the U.S., mm-hmm. and about a third of them have been held in isolation. Mm. So at, at that stage, your brain is still developing. What do we know about what this does to a growing brain? Empirically, what we know is that the adolescent brain requires the ongoing exposure to stimulation and feedback from the environment in order to develop not only intellectually, but also morally. And again, I come back to this term reality testing, get a sense of what is uh, going to work in an environment where they, as an adult, have to function. Now, the problem that we encounter in the correctional system is that some of these individuals are deprived for such a long time. And now that's where the risk for the juveniles, of course, occurs, because they're deprived of a critical part in their development. But even if we didn't have brain imaging and brain studies available, we would find it out psychologically that they're missing critical cues about what kind of behaviors, what kind of emotional responses work for them and work in a socially productive way for them. Given what you know about its psychological impact, what's your opinion on the use of solitary confinement? I have spent a lot of time working in correctional settings, and I'm very aware of the need to provide a secure environment for other inmates and for staff there. Uh, It is uh, currently used in order to promote security in an institution. I do understand that. My suspicion is that we're using it too much and for too long periods of time, that there is too little uh, willingness to look at alternatives, because in my opinion, if we really aim at a low recidivism of low return rates of offenders into the correctional system, we ought to pay attention to the risk that prolonged deprivation of social interactions can have in terms of preparing people for the outside world again. So my hunch is, and I would suggest we look at other systems of, you know, other countries, other cultures, that we're probably using it too often and especially for too long a period of time. Gisela Tellis spoke with U of A psychiatrist Oli Teenhouse. Here's more of my interview with James Burns. So at the age of 18, you get released from the Stenton prison, which included this long period in in solitary. Were you able to rebuild or reconnect with people that you knew before you went to prison? Or were you more successful in forming new relationships that didn't have to cover that territory in your life? There's a lot of side effects that come with solitary confinement, and none of them are pro-social. When I first got out, I did reconnect with people from my past, and I was starting to go down the wrong path again. I was starting to slip, and I knew very quickly that it was a matter of time before I went back to prison or I was going to end up dead. So I started forming new relationships with people that helped me grow and see the world in a different way that I hadn't seen before. Uh, and that's part of my was part of my mission with the uh, solitary project is to, you know, give hope and reconnect and uh, let people know that there is a different world out there. Well, that leads us to probably the biggest question that I can ask you, and the biggest question that our our listeners are going to want to know about: Why did you decide to step back into that? 
personal hell and voluntarily submit to a period of isolation once again? Um, There are a few reasons that I did it, but the main reason is there are 80,000 men and women in solitary confinement in America today, and they don't have a platform to advocate for themselves. And hopefully people start paying attention and making some changes so that way those incarcerated persons in solitary confinement may have a chance as well. But didn't you feel you were taking a risk with your health and your sanity? So the other part of going into solitary was facing something that I hadn't faced in over a decade, but this time as an adult with a new perspective on the world. It was actually a very painful experience in a lot of ways because I was I was triggered. But I think that um, reminding myself every once in a while, because I was so immersed, I had to remind myself that, hey, this is a project and you can't forget your mission. Um, so I was, I was able to deal with a lot of things, and I think it was very cathartic in a way. How is it that La Paz County ended up being the institution that would host you during this new stint? There were several other facilities that we had looked at, and uh, there were a few other people who were willing to collaborate with us. But uh, the reason why we chose La Paz County was because they had a interesting perspective. And I think that they're very proud of the way that uh, they run the county, and they're very transparent and open. So uh, having a conversation about solitary confinement was, was a given for them. To get more information, Arizona Spotlight executive producer Peter Michaels spoke with Captain Kurt Bagby of the La Paz County Sheriff's Office. Can you tell me, at any given time uh, in La Paz, how many people are in solitary at the jail? Well, there's a difference between solitary confinement in prisons and jails. So La Paz County, what we have is a detention facility or a jail and it is for non-sentenced inmates, and we don't necessarily have solitary confinement. What we have are cells where inmates may have to be isolated for their own protection or the protection of others. It's not necessarily for punishment. You have instances where inmates might either want to hurt themselves or on a continuous basis hurt other inmates and or staff, and in those instances we can't let that continue to happen. So at times they may have to be, say, maybe 10 days at a time as a max, be put in some type of isolation to where they're unable to to affect other people. Did you seek funding to proceed with this project with James? Were taxpayer dollars used? How was this paid for? I think it's only like $40 a day it costs to house an inmate. In a situation like this, the jail wasn't too worried about the cost because it's almost you know like when we do a public service, and, and this could fall under that category. Have you received any public reaction to the project, either positive or negative? I would think that it was probably 80% positive out of what I read. 80 to 90% of the, of the public were very positive because they're thanking us for starting this conversation, for doing the project. As a matter of fact, I was more worried about law enforcement's reaction, thinking they might be a little upset that we're, we're doing this. But I cannot think of one place that was upset with us across the law enforcement community in Arizona because everybody, at least around here, is following the very basic humanitarian-type guidelines where it's not being overused in a sense where people are locked away for six months at a time or anything like that. Some people called us mad. You need to feed him better, or you need to <laughs> let him out. Yeah. And they didn't understand that he didn't want to be let out. 
this is something he was doing. And so we got a few few phone calls from people that were a little upset, um, but they just didn't understand the, the whole premise of the, the project. Burns told me that he received no special treatment from the staff during his stay, except for being allowed access to writing materials to compose letters and record his thoughts. Again, here is James Burns. One of the other things that was very different about this time was that uh, there was a camera in the cell that I was able to address um, to let people know that I was okay and uh, maybe give them an idea of what I was going through. But I have to say that I was so immersed, uh, again, because of past experiences that I completely forgot sometimes that, uh, or a lot of times, that I was, I was being watched and there were people out there that uh, were checking in to make sure everything was okay. That brings up a question that I thought about before we talked, which is, is how does this affect your sleep cycle? Because I know that when I'm depressed or feeling isolated, sometimes it's easy to sleep for hours and hours on end, to sleep far beyond what a, what a normal working person might consider you know, normal sleeping hours. Other times it leads to insomnia and a complete resistance to sleep where your, your body is just so tired of it. One of the beginning stages of, of regression is not being able to sleep. And uh, that's the case for me. Or for some people, all they can do is sleep. They can't get out of bed. Um, so for me, uh, I have a very active brain. And so I spend all these days with my thoughts. And my thoughts are racing, and they're just piling up and piling up. And by the end of the night, I lay down and close my eyes, but I can't sleep. I can't turn the thoughts off. And so there's this frustration because you stay up until, you know, five in the morning and that's when the lights come back on. So there was an on-off cycle controlled by the guards equivalent to day and night. There's lights on 24-7, but they dim them around 11 p.m. and at 5 a.m. they come back on. So you get about six hours, but uh, with the dim lights. Breakfast would come at 5 a.m. I'd eat uh, and then I'd you know, get back in the bed and try to fall asleep again, which I could. But by that point, my sleeping was interrupted a lot. And, you know, so I'd sleep until lunchtime. <laughs> and uh, and then I, I would usually get up after that because I felt like I, I at least had enough to function. That, that's a big problem. Your sleeping patterns start to slip and then the anxiety begins to build more and then your thoughts are very clouded and, you know, convoluted with with negative thinking and very difficult and I have to admit even this time um, I remember lying in that bed and thinking that I wanted to get up and throw myself against the door because of how frustrated I was that I couldn't sleep. I don't think that if you did activism on behalf of people in a solitary confinement or if you did a project about solitary confinement I don't think anybody would say, oh, well, you don't have enough experience to speak to this. But if somebody said this sounds like stunt journalism, what would be your reply? My reply to somebody who may feel like this is stunt journalism is that's that's okay uh, to, to feel that way. Uh, we've made plenty of documentaries in the past uh, about solitary confinement, and those traditional documentaries should continue. Um, but the medium of live stream was very important because uh, it's immersive and people are able to connect in real time and see what the day in, day out 
a solitary confinement is actually like. So while this project is very personal for me uh, and I'm in there really uh, trying to pull through and get through it, I think that people were, were connecting with me in a lot of ways. And again, this is meant to start a conversation and raise awareness about the 80,000 some odd men and women in solitary confinement today to give them a voice because they're not seen or heard and hopefully starting discussion about how we can change things. Hearing about all the detrimental effects that solitary confinement has on people, do you have any sort of recommendation or perspective on how our penal system might evolve past doing this? Or even after your experience, do you feel that sometimes solitary confinement is a necessary step? That's, that's a great question. I, first, I have to say that I think the consequences of our actions with enforcing solitary confinement are immeasurable. We incarcerate more people than anyone else in the world. And about 80% of the people who are incarcerated now are going to get out of prison. And that means that they're going to be your neighbor. So we have to think about whether we want to make people better uh, than they were before they stepped in and uh, release them uh, back into society as uh, productive um, members. And, you know, some of the recommendations that I, you know, I think I wish I had one answer to give you. I think it's a very complex issue because on one hand you have correctional staff and deputies and facilities across the nation that have to keep their facilities safe. And there are people out there that are a danger to themselves and others, and they have to isolate them, and they use solitary as a management tool. Unfortunately, uh, this tool, you know, it's, it's not keeping anyone safer, and it's actually uh, inhumane and, and torturous. Now, I think that some of the solutions here are to bring in professional staff who are going to supervise and give programming on a regular basis. Some of the things that I think could help people not go completely mad while they're locked in a cage is making it mandatory that they have access to reading materials, um, mandatory that facilities hire more mental health professionals, and having them checking in and programming with those incarcerated persons on a regular basis making it mandatory that uh, you, you get natural sunlight and that you get a, a chance to go out in the prison yard. You can find out more about James Burns and the documentary that he's making about solitary confinement at vice.com. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.